Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. On this week's New Statesman podcast, Anoush, Alva and I discuss the seeming success of Eat Out to Help Out, and you ask us, what do we make of the Scottish exam results? So, diners across the United Kingdom have been, I was actually being handed a voucher, that's obviously not true, the voucher, there is at no point does a voucher actually physically exist, but have, um, you know, been given the opportunity to go out and and eat for the first week of the eat out to help out scheme, which is obviously part of the government's overall approach to like, you know, get the economy moving again. Have either of you ate out to help out? (laughs) I have indeed eaten out to help out, Stephen. Yesterday, my friends and I traipsed up and down the Lisburn Road in South Belfast, seeking a pizza place or really any place that serves food that wasn't completely booked out for all evening. It was honestly amazing how busy it was. I've never seen that street like that, even on a Saturday night. And this was obviously a Wednesday evening because, as you say, this is the first week of the scheme and the Wednesday night is the last night of the week that you can do it because it's Mondays to Wednesdays. So I can report back that it has been a roaring success in Belfast so far. I went to a place that I'd never actually eaten at before called Jian Bang Bang Noodles in Whitechapel with a couple of friends and it was really delicious and thrillingly cheap. So that was my experience. It was a positive experience of the Eat Out to Help Out scheme. But it did feel, and this is this is nicking an observation from our uh, from our producer, Nick, sorry to out you, Nick, but um, it did feel a little bit uncomfortable because there were people <laughs> on tables surrounding us you know, saying that it was sort of Rishi's meal deal and Rishi's dishes and stuff. And it's quite, it's quite odd that that, it's quite odd that you're sort of participating willingly and enthusiastically in what feels a little bit like sort of Soviet propaganda. <laughs> um, and like I've seen, I've seen leaflets for different restaurants and things with his face kind of recreated on them saying, thanks Rishi and stuff like that. So, I mean, I feel as someone who, you know, is not a natural, naturally sympathetic of this government's values, I feel slightly uncomfortable about that. Um, but then he is the most popular politician in the country, so um, he must be doing something right. Stephen, have you, you? You must have used it. You're. <laughs> when I asked this question, I just thought, I don't understand why I've thrown this boomerang and is inevitably going to hit me in the face. So I. <laughs> 
I have actually eaten out to help out three times. So all three evenings that it, it's been available before our not, recording of this podcast. Not all three evenings. I went out for for two lunches. One with a sauce. Mm. That's my excuse. <laughs> and I've gone out for two evening meals. <laughs> I yeah, I really like food. Okay, like that's like you know that, that's. But like you, it's one of those things where, well, I feel really weird about it because the weird thing about this crisis is that it's really like exposed the kind of like things I am willing to take a risk for. Like the last thing I basically did before lockdown happened was, um, you know, I was uh, talking with some friends slash slash sources, but, you know, they were doing that annoying thing that sources do when they start to shade into like not being like workplace proximity associates, but being like friends. And so they then like tell you something about your boss and you're just like, Oh, I, I, it, could you please have told me that four months ago when I would have felt less guilty about writing that up? But so I was having like one of those like kind of conversations about, oh yeah, like where I was going to take them for lunch, and they were going to talk to me about you know their boss's agenda. And 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 but it was it was when it was starting to get like you know it, it was at that point when basically you know everyone was actually locking down, but the government hadn't told anyone to lock down yet, right? That week before when everything was empty and like people were starting to like have duels over the last bit of toilet roll and. Because obviously I'm a massive foodie, it was a slightly surreal time because like my usual shopping habit was basically being declared selfish, despite the fact I didn't actually do any shopping in that week because I already had like a food bin and a food thing and like loads of tinned goods because I'm a boring food person. But so they were like, oh, you know, should we go out? And then they named some ghastly place around Westminster. I mean, there are so many bad places to eat around Westminster. It could have been anywhere. And I was just like, no, look, we could be dead in two days. We'll probably be locked down in a week or so. Yeah, let's let's go somewhere sort of actually nice. So the last place I went at a point when I really was like not going out, was washing my hands, was doing all the things, just like, but I'm willing to risk all of that for a restaurant. So similarly, obviously, I've been like, yep, if someone, I am basically the dead weight in every sense. I'm getting fat because I love food so much. And the government is literally giving me money to do this thing that I'm going to do anyway. Yeah, and I had a, a great time on all three occasions. The thing, I don't know about anyone else, but I was really surprised because so I went to like Bleecker, I think the best of the chain burger restaurants. I went to my lovely local Trattoria because I love it very dearly and I'm continually amazed and it manages to survive the continued gentrification of the area. And it was pleasingly and astonishingly full, fuller than I've ever seen it. And I went to um, a very posh restaurant in Soho that I'm not going to name for fear of losing the last of my credibility with a sauce. <laughs> uh, and also, I, 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 actually, I'm worse than I thought. I also went for like a, a lunch in our local pub where I did some work and had some chips and they were very nice. And you also tweeted that you've been working in cafes. So you really yeah. are single-handedly propping up the economy, Stephen. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm actually just a patriot. What can I say? Um, but, <laughs> I think um, you owe Rishi a refund, though, because you, you would have been going to these places anyway. <laughs> I, I mean, yeah. That, so th- this is the thing is that I didn't think this scheme would work. I thought then basically, you know, people like me would basically be being paid to, like, do the thing that we do. And then it wouldn't actually generate that much extra interest because people were still very worried about the virus. Mm-hmm. Right. In the same way that there is like... There is no voucher that you could get that would cause me to like, you know, go to a nightclub. So I'm, I, I genuinely, you know, I, I basically need to like work out, you know, do my postmortem of what I got wrong. But do you think that this means that the government will succeed in getting people to to go out and spend despite the health risks? It's really difficult to tell. And we're actually the, the data lags. So we're actually doing some some analysis 
of the data that we have available into with the new statesman data team i should say into sort of footfall and and how much take up there's been in restaurants of this scheme so far because we've only we're not even at the end of of the first week that that it's been in place so it's hard to tell how much take up there's been first of all even though there is this sort of like we've all described a kind of buzz and enthusiasm surrounding it and I think the big question will be whether people see it as a nice summer freebie but then go back to being scared about the virus and seeing the cases rising in various places in Europe and and in in this country as well. Aberdeen's just had to close its restaurants, many of which were only just preparing to serve the eat out, help out scheme. And, you know, go back to being scared and being indoors and not spending money again once it's over. Or whether going to restaurants and participating in this scheme means that you now have learned the behavior of taking a risk and not feeling too frightened and leaving your house and potentially sitting indoors and using a loo that's not your own loo and doing all of the things that a lot of people have been very scared to do for the past few months. And it's really hard to tell, you know, like I've spoken to people who have been given a lot of confidence, who were very nervous by the encouragement to go to go out and eat and, and meet up with people maybe who you haven't seen. I don't know whether that means that that's sort of ingrained ingrained and it becomes a behavior change and the government achieves sort of partially what it wants to which is trying to coax some more demand into the economy but it's hard to tell at this stage I mean so I'm I think you're right to point out that we don't have the data on this yet but I'm just gonna take a a punt on it and say that I do (laughs) think it is working I mean I was one of those people doing the inadvertent Rishi propaganda yesterday where as I saw just quite how busy it was on the Lisburn Road in Belfast, like busier than I've than I've ever seen it, even on a Saturday night on a on a sunny weekend or something. I did kind of think, you know, fair play, Rishi. I think this is a maybe a more powerful behavioural nudge than we initially credited it as being. Because I mean, I think that there are there are broader criticisms to make about a situation where we're being given a discount to go and and eat out when. Some people have been excluded from economic support for various reasons and statutory sick pay is incredibly low and we kind of aren't providing the economic conditions for people to quarantine, for example, when they come back from holiday or when they're sick. So I think in the bigger picture, there are criticisms to be made. But in terms of the actual scheme, I think that it has, as far as I can tell, done wonders in terms of convincing people that eating out, being in a restaurant or being in a bar or pub or a cafe is somehow lower risk than basically equivalent behaviours. I mean, there's a, there's a very interesting column in, in the Telegraph today about Rishi Sunak's plans to end the furlough scheme and being quite critical of that. But it points out that in other ways, um, the Chancellor has been performing very well so far. And it points out that I mean, it's the, the column is notable for lots of other reasons, but I thought it was interesting that it was the first time I've seen in print people acknowledging that the Eat Out to Help Out scheme is like kind of clashing with the parallel message on virus control, basically, that like, as far as I can tell, there isn't really any way of doing any of the mitigating conditions that, that we're told to do when we interact with people who aren't from our household when you're in a restaurant or when you're in a cafe that like with the way the tables are set up you literally can't be the required distance away from people if you're eating you literally can't wear a mask and 
if you're indoors, then you don't have the mitigating factor of better ventilation or being outdoors. So I just find it very striking that I think among younger people, there is a lot of socializing in in each other's homes here. But people aren't really going to each other's certainly older people aren't going to each other's houses to socialize that much the people are more concerned but they have been prepared to take the leap to go to a restaurant I saw lots of older people out last night because it is government sanctioned I mean some of the queues for restaurants were indoors and very very busy it was impossible I mean you people were right on top of each other like on a busy tube there was like really no possibility of social distancing but I could just see that because it's a sort of government scheme that people feel happy to participate in some of that fear had gone away and I'm not sure whether that will extend to other behaviors but I suppose that doesn't matter because the point of this is A, to support the hospitality sector in particular, because that's considered one of the key ways of preventing mass youth unemployment, given how many young people are employed in the hospitality sector. But then I suppose B, it is also to kind of, it's to give people a nudge that means that when they take on risk, they take on risks that are also of economic benefit, so that you're not, you know, I feel like that's the kind of cynical underpinning of this, but it makes sense that the government doesn't necessarily want you to take on a risk just to go around the corner to your friend's house and spend nothing. They want people to be taking on a risk where there is at least an economic benefit the way there would be in a bar or a pub. And we have seen that in some of the lockdown guidance for Greater Manchester, for example, that it doesn't extend to pubs, but it it extends to households. So I think my answer to your question, Stephen, is I actually do really believe in this scheme now, despite, despite its flaws and the fact that it kind of floats the public health guidance. I think it really is working. Yeah, it's it's also while you were talking, I was looking at the open table data, which I have been obsessively looking at over the course of this crisis, because I really love restaurants. And I'm basically I spend all of my time in like state of anxiety about like, you know, the economy falling off a cliff. So, you know, I have to like live in a box, the collapse of the arts and of opportunities for people to access them for free. If you can, by the way, you should definitely all sign the it's a general plea to our listeners to sign the open letter as an ally of South Bank against their, I think, disastrous uh, plans for it after this crisis is over. And the future of restaurants and the way I've been channeling this anxiety in the latter cases going on open tables data about bookings, which, to give you kind of context, were basically showing kind of falls of 13 to 25% on most days, sometimes even, you know, kind of 40% if there's like, a bad news story in the three days of eat out to help out they have been up 10 percent, 5 percent, and 20 percent year on year the question i kind of have is like what do we think will happen if there is yeah purely hypothetically let's say there's a second wave and everything has to shut again will like eat out to help out too work a second time or people be like oh, rishi you like you know you led me astray with your eating out last time but but i know what happened afterwards Will this work a second time if, if they have to do it a second time? Yeah, that's a really good question. And also, will will restaurants survive that kind of upheaval? A lot of restaurant owners who you speak to, although, you know, they, they, their one thing that they want is more customers to come in, have been, you know, slightly dismissive of the VAT cut to 5% and also the voucher scheme being so short term. And, you know, feel that they need more long term support throughout this. Otherwise, they risk collapsing completely. And I think that kind of fluctuation 
so a lockdown, you know, like the one in Aberdeen that I mentioned and and in Leicester, where they also closed the restaurants in other local lockdowns in this country, they haven't actually told restaurants to close. They've just told people to be more alert in their sort of social interaction outside of the hospitality sector. But, you know, restaurants who have to undergo that kind of fluctuation of okay, you know, make sure that we're ready for this huge influx of customers. Oh no, now we have to close again and we've already been closed for X amount of time and we've already had to lay off staff or we're already looking at laying off staff after the furlough scheme ends in October. You know, will they survive that kind of uncertainty? You have to buy in food, you have to make sure you have the stocks that you need. Then you have all of these stocks that you can't use and they might go off. You know, there's all sorts of different considerations for restaurant owners that are basically sort of impossible if you're going to if you're never going to know when you have to close or open so I do think it could have an impact on on consumer behavior if if things lock down again and then you want people to eat out to help out again you know people may be more cautious and maybe more cynical about the scheme but it could also mean that there aren't those as many restaurants to go to you know We've always said that this this is a bit of a false binary between the choosing p- the public health or the economy, because one always affects the other and vice versa. Yeah, I I know I'm saying this almost in the same breath as saying that I think the scheme is working, because I think it is temporarily. But I I do, I think I agree with both of you that it it might not be that long before the correlation between outbreaks and pubs and restaurants is exposed. I mean, there was a very good, I think it was in the New York Times, a very compelling piece on how bars and pubs are the worst places for spreading the virus because of various conditions it's 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 very very compelling and that seems to be the message from other countries that the pubs and bars in particular pose the greatest risk so i think maybe once that message catches up here and when we have more data on that maybe the e to help out scheme will be a bit different but i suppose there is there is also the difference between going to a restaurant in your household and the conditions of a bar where people are standing around and drinking and maybe being less careful as they drink more and there's more intermingling between households. But on the point about more support for restaurants, Anush, you wrote a really, really great piece about the the end of Brick Lane, this the really famous street in do, would you say East London? Yeah, I never know whether that counts as, as east or central or kind of north because I'm not a Londoner, basically. Oh God, this is I'm I'm never doing a fair hiring process ever again. <laughs> this is the, the... <laughs> but you know, as David Cameron says, you know, it's it's about knowing what you don't know. I did know to ask there. You did, yeah. And also, it's East London, but it is very central. So I mm. think you're spot on. Thanks, Anish. <laughs> But yes, no, I mean, that's maybe a slightly misleading case study for for a conversation like this, just because curry houses in general across Britain, but particularly in that area for its own local circumstances to do with gentrification and property prices and the rising rents and business rates are in a particularly vulnerable position and have been for, for a few years. And COVID-19 appears to be the sort of what a couple of restaurant owners on that street described as the nail in the coffin for for their restaurants that were already struggling because of competition from, you know, other cuisines and changing consumer tastes, but also cultural things such as the next generation of Bangladeshis and others who who own curry houses not being keen to take up their parents' businesses anymore because they, they have more choices than their parents did and they want to do different things. And working in restaurants like that is is, is extremely difficult. 
tough hours, tough conditions. But there's also, you know, been visa changes over the years, particularly in the coalition years, that has meant it's difficult to hire chefs and other staff from South Asia. And, you know, like they, they've been described to me as sort of scientists, these chefs, you know, you can't, not anyone can, can train to do this kind of work. And so they've kind of been hit from all sides. But COVID-19 has been a particular ch- challenge for them because they, they just don't think that the v- VAT cut and the voucher scheme are enough. And I think that that's a feeling across the sector that once that scheme ends and once the furlough scheme starts to be diluted and, and, and then tapered off, there will be mass redundancies and it will be impossible to keep these kind of restaurants open, which operate, you know, on very tight margins. Something that was also told to me, which um, doesn't just relate to curry houses, is is the price of food has gone up. So buying food wholesale because of inflation. So that's another challenge that other restaurants have. And of course, this is an issue for the people who own these businesses and for the customers who enjoy them. But it's also it's also an issue for you know uh, it's, it, it will leave a big cultural hole and it will be an end of a sort of era in London's history in that area but especially if if curry houses across the country go the same direction you know it's an important part of our heritage and chicken tikka masala was declared the national dish in the new labor years so you know we, we do lose something when we don't support these industries and um, the call has been for the government and local councils to to do something about it, mainly to promote rather than some other emergency funding scheme. It was, can you just promote us abroad and, and you know, talk us up because the industry feels kind of forgotten. That was one of my favourite things about the piece. And I think you really captured the kind of the cultural meaning of Brick Lane for people who haven't been, the way it feels like that one street represents a lot of the kind of the diversity and the history of different immigrant communities in London that is like so central to to the experience of being in London, just like the, the Curry Mile in, in Manchester or other British cities. And and yeah, that that we would lose something if if that was no longer there or or even if the I mean part of why the experience in Brick Lane is so nice is that there are there are lots of those restaurants. I know as you point out, there aren't as many as there used to be, but I think it you know, it won't be the same if there's only one left or two. I think it's the fact that that's like the curry destination in London. But I was kind of thinking flippantly when I was reading it that I think the, the first nail in the coffin was when um, Oxford and Cambridge graduates. I don't know if you're aware of this trend, but I think the first nail in, in the Brick Lane coffin was when Oxford and Cambridge graduates started using curry houses in brick lane as a destination for their like reunion crew dates um, i didn't know that i yeah. did oh, not know that this is why i don't go to brick lane anymore because I, I went to school 10 minutes down the road on foot and was born at the hospital at the other end of the of the street and you know, and lived basically two minutes away from it for quite a lot of my childhood and whenever I go back, right, it's entered this toxic thing in me, Bobby, where it hasn't gentrified enough that the people I couldn't stand at school have been forced out. So I have to avoid them. But it has gentrified so much and the people I couldn't stand at university just like sort of <laughs> are there as yeah. well. Yeah, I mean, Anusha, I love all of your pieces, but I think it was definitely one of my favourite things you've written, one of my favourite things we've ever run, because oh, you did you. evoke it so well in a way that I actually I I've, it was really good and I think everyone should read it but I actually found, was really surprised a how evocative and how upsetting I therefore found it mm-hmm. which is obviously hypocritical seeing I was like people should really go to this thing then I've just 
just stated that I refuse to go to for fear of like meeting some like. I mean, it's just like, you know, like, it's like, it's like, oh, so I can meet like a rugby lad or I can meet someone who would have been a rugby lad if they had like class privileges, but instead is just like someone who used to bully me. Yeah, it's, like, it's, it's not a fun experience. <laughs> but but um, it, yeah, it was a very sort of, it was a really great piece that everyone should, should read. In East London, I would just like to make that clear. <laughs> it's not central-ish. <laughs> If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Now it's time for a section we like to call you ask us. And so the question of the week is from Gregor's thoughts on the Scottish school grades debacle. Or is it, Alva, you, 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 you're, you know, a French speaker. Is it debacle or is it, de, de, how, how should I say that word? Oh, I think you did a good job. I okay. actually don't know in French whether that has an acute accent on it or not. One of the failings of my degree. But so it would be either debacle or debacle. Okay, well, the... The, the 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 word of of, of of confused pronunciation in case you haven't been following this is the the row the row thank you is that Scottish schools have had their exam results this week schools in England Wales and Northern Ireland will have theirs out they are obviously not exam results they are generated through a process called moderation where you basically put in people's school results their school's overall performance the characteristics of the school and their previous results in some cases, you put them all together and that allows you to go, okay, so your school has predicted, you know, in some case, 80%. Yeah, so you've, you've predicted an 80% A to C pass rate. It, it's still A to C's in, in, in hires. Okay, yeah, so you've predicted an 80% pass rate. We're going to downgrade that to 60%, which is what you would, in inverted commas, have got. And this has caused a lot of people to get very angry because it has resulted in everyone across the income distribution getting their grades downgraded but it has resulted in a big gap between the top quintile the top top 20 percent and the bottom quintile of the income distribution in terms of the passes they get in scottish hires yes yes and and this has resulted obviously in in i think thousands of pupils being disappointed by their grades because obviously the inevitable result of a moderation process like like you described so well Stephen is that um is that people receive worse results than they were expecting or perhaps they deserved 
And so, you know, inevitably people are pulled down and that means that they lose places, universities or courses or apprenticeships, jobs, things that they're the things that were relying on them getting the they're getting certain grades that they've missed because of this process and because it's such a big amount you know it's it's such it's I think it's something was it a quarter a quarter of the total had their results lowered so you know that's quite a big proportion and it, and it can feel incredibly unjust and obviously one of the downsides of of this is is not just the individual stories of pupils who 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 feel disappointed and and have had their futures changed by it it's also this idea that there is there is a cursed generation you know as soon as pupils were being made to to stay out of school as lockdown began people began to talk about the and we spoke about on the podcast about the incredibly damaging impact on on children's lives of not being able to go to school not just in terms of education but also in terms of their social development and also their safety as well and you know this is is another example of how that sort of generation ha- will feel aggrieved even though you know a moderation process is part of of exam results each year they will feel that they that that like you wrote in your piece Stephen which was very good about this they'll feel that circumstances beyond their control have changed their futures you know what long term impact does that kind of that kind of resentment have down the line so the weird thing about that piece is when I started it, I thought well, I'm going to write on this and I'm going to explain why I think this is the right decision by the Scottish government. Right. Because with the greatest of respect to both the attainment challenge, which is the, the which was kind of Nicola Sturgeon's first act as first minister, was a kind of swathe of policy announcements to improve the standard of Scottish schooling. And it has seen some some gradual improvements. Obviously, school reform takes a long time to, to, to actually be felt. But with the greatest of respect to it, it was not going to achieve a 20% increase in grades, right? That is the type of increasement in grades we like associate with countries which have just moved to having free at the point of use schooling or have been able to end a situation where like they're not in a civil war, right? Like it, that does not happen in, in like developed non-conflict ridden nations that have free point schooling already, right? So we can we can definitely say that that result is not accurate. And then the argument I was going to make is, well, look, if anything, you could slightly criticise them for saying, well, what's your basis for thinking that you would have achieved these 1%, 2% incremental improvements in the pass rate? But then I actually kind of sit down and you think about it. And it is just the fact that ultimately like, we, we, they haven't, it's not like they've been able to magically accurately find the 69% of people who would have passed, right? They've just got a like, they've and what they've ended up with is a situation where they've picked about the right number, some of whom would have failed, some of whom who have failed would not have failed. And this is particularly sharp and acute, I think, for people who are not going to get their their English and maths qualification. Like, I do think one of the problems is, is that politics is, is you know, policy is decided, debated, discussed and analysed, you know, bluntly by people like the people doing this podcast, i.e. people for whom their grades being downgraded. So if I, my GCSEs had been moderated, I would have be even more smug and infuriating than I am now because I, like, wildly underperformed my year nine sats and my mocks in my GCSEs. I still like what I needed to get into my preferred choice of sixth form, but you know, I did much worse than I would have expected to. In A-levels, it's the reverse. But in both situations, it's like the worst thing that would have happened is I would have gone to, you know, like another Russell Group uni. And I think like lots of people are kind of analysing it through the like, oh, well, that's the worst that happens, rather than like, no, for some people, the worst that happens isn't they're going to be given a failure in English and maths that they wouldn't have got otherwise. Like that is a huge like scarring effect on exactly as you say, this really unlucky generation. And I kind of just think like, 
the least that we could have done, that the Scottish government could have done as a state is just go, do you know what? We're going to take the view that the labour market will just have to work out in a slightly more organic way what the qualifications of these people are or will have like extended extension of when people leave. I just think that there's been a real problem with like with schooling. Then what's tended to happen is governments have kind of gone, oh, this is a bit difficult, isn't it? And then like have decided like, oh, well, it's important that we've still got our great AB data, mm. which, yeah, I mean, this this year is junk from a data perspective, right? I think I'm, I'm very persuaded by that argument, Stephen, because I think instinctively I would have had the first say the same first instincts as you on this in that I don't know if I would necessarily come out and say that the Scottish government made the right call also because I suppose I don't have to you know make my mind up on whether they've made the right call on this or not and I can just accept that it's complicated but I think my instinctive feeling was that this is obviously awful for people who have been and and rightly feel that they've been massively disadvantaged by this but I did feel like Nicola Sturgeon's explanation of it which was quite like widely criticized it's worth watching for listeners if you haven't if you haven't seen it, just to, to see the case that she makes. Um, but I, I felt that was widely criticised and I actually thought that she had done a reasonable job of explaining a quite difficult case to put forward because I think basically the problem is a much bigger one than than these results. And if anything, it's good that the way these ones have been worked out is prompting hopefully a much bigger look at the way we grade students. I think like basically there's a problem whereby and there was a very good thread on this on Twitter but I think basically there's a problem whereby we determine who succeeds and who fails based around an average so if you do less well than average beyond a certain point you fail and if you do better than the average then you then you succeed so basically your success is is relative rather than just concrete and it means that I think that's like probably a fundamentally bad way of of measuring attainment because I suppose Nicola Sturgeon was making a very complicated argument about attainment and how the attainment gap isn't being caused by these numerical processes or by these adjustments but but because there is actually like a gap in terms of the quality of education people are receiving but we don't have a system whereby just everyone who knows x thing has it recognized that they learned x but they don't know why if you like just know X less well than other people, in some cases you would technically fail. And I don't, I don't think, I mean, maybe someone might argue that, well, you know, life is about winners and losers. But I think in terms of what you've learned at school and what you still need to learn, we could have a much more forgiving education system that just recognizes what knowledge people have gained, what they know, what they don't know. And that doesn't pit people so much against each other. I, I do just think what they've done in France of like having a lot more assessment and just being a lot more prepared for it and just be actually just being much more hot on the issue of schools from the very beginning as a kind of well I was about to say a prime ministerial responsibility I mean a presidential responsibility rather than the kind of sense one does sometimes get from Downing Street and it's like well it would it's important that they're reopened but it's Gavin Williamson's fault not ours if they aren't I thought the interesting thing about Sturgeon's answer though was I actually thought she in a way, I, the thing you could tell is I felt she seemed genuinely upset by it, mm. which I think was one of the reasons why I felt quite sympathetic. I, and it is genuinely a difficult question about what you do. And there's also the added complexity of what do you do if you're the Scottish government and you know your ability to... Because if you're the English government, actually, 
you're also the British government, so you can just go, I will lock everything in order to reopen schools. I don't think they will do that, but that's what they should do, right? They should basically be willing to lock all three of us in like a cupboard, if that is what it takes, in order to be able to have like non-socially distanced classrooms mm. safely. However, if, if unless you have a situation where the British Treasury is willing to provide the funds to do that, that's not actually a policy option that's available if you're Scotland, Wales or Northern Ireland. And the thing I still haven't quite been able to resolve in my head is, is if I were advising one of the first ministers, what would I be saying they should do? Should I Would I be saying, look, we need to basically try and guess what we think the English government is capable of doing and like collab- uh, sort of shape our response around that or do you just go our view is then we will open schools as normal you know if we literally have to be like look we've opted to do this and if you don't help us financially it'll just bankrupt this devolved institution is that the choice you're willing to make I kind of think it probably should because I just think that this the kind of generational scarring if schools don't reopen is it's just going to be so much worse than like any other problem of debt to GDP Mm. or you know my favorite restaurants closing but that is quite a big risk to take it's much easier for me to say that you should do that than it would be to advise a first minister that's what they ought to do. Mm. I mean, we'll be having this debate when other students in England and Wales and here in Northern Ireland get their results. But I think that the the even bigger debate will be next year when we see the results of children and student, of pupils who have been able to sit their exams, we imagine, next year, but who who will have missed out on nearly a full year of teaching and 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 that's when those like the starkest inequalities resulting from lockdown will, will start to appear and like everything you know this virus seems to accelerate already existing trends and like you said there's been questions about the way that we that children have to sit exams for a long time and right down to the technology as well there are private education companies who have been developing systems for children to sit exams digitally for a long time you know will this hasten will this hasten that kind of innovation which could you know if done correctly lead to a less unequal education system because it gives children who find it difficult to sit in hours long exams writing and concentrating for that period of time children who find that difficult a a different way of doing it and it also takes some of the arbitrary nature of of marking and teachers perspectives on children out of it as well which of course teachers are 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 vulnerable to the same unconscious biases that we all are and so taking some of that out of the system could could result in 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 better prospects for future generations but of course that would be later down the line but if the virus has that effect of, of hastening the good changes in the education system then maybe that's a light at the end of the tunnel I think I have been convinced by this discussion that it would have been better for the Scottish government to let more people pass on the same kind of principle that the judicial system works under in this country, that I suppose that fundamental principle that it's much better to let a guilty person walk free than to wrongly convict somebody. Mm. With school pupils who you know have been sitting exams or like who have been not setting sitting exams but getting results in a really unprecedented time I mean far better to let someone pass who would otherwise have failed than to fail somebody who's going to have their life prospects really altered by not passing and by like by give by being given a a wrong failure and as, as as Stephen wrote letting the sort of companies or 
you know, admissions person is figure out the impact of taking someone on who may not may not be the right fit or or may not be capable for whatever path because they've they've had their grades slightly inflated. You've been listening to the New States and Podcast with me, Stephen Bush, my colleague Anusha Kellyan, and our political correspondent Alva Ray. Our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. If you've been enjoying the New Statesman podcast, please do leave a favourable review on your pod provider. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.